Rest, uh, a great psalm that talks about that catechism question, that one that we read there even, about who God is and how God um, controls our lives and manifests himself to us and to his world. And so we're going to read this psalm together, and I trust that, um, that you'll be encouraged as I am by thinking about the person of God revealed here in Psalm 24. So let's read the psalm together, and then we'll begin. Psalm 24 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the King of glory will come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord of armies. He is the King of glory. Let's pray briefly together as we get started, that God will guide our time tonight in his word. Father, lift our hearts, our eyes, our thoughts. Uh, humble us today in viewing you for who you are. I trust a, a, a picture of all that you are to us and for us so that we can endure, adore you more because of your majestic kingship the ways in which you reign uh, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may remember that I've told you on another occasion that prior to serving overseas in missions myself and my, with my family as an adult, I grew up in the Amazon basin amongst a tribal group there called the Yanomamu people. My Parents and my grandparents translated uh, the, the scriptures into that language and did church planting work there. And uh, I remember a lot of specific and unique cultural circumstances there because of spending so much time with the Yanomamu people as a young person. Anthropologists think of the Yanomamu as stone-aged hunter-gatherers because they live in uh, what, it, what amounts to a game reserve of 20,000 square miles of jungle. And the, the, because of the number of the people, there's only about 20,000 Yanomami people. That means one person per square mile. And so, as you can imagine, that's a lot of territory out there that they've occupied for a long time. So after I graduated from high school in Brazil, I came back to U.S. and went to, went to university and studied linguistics. I was interested in Bible translation myself. And for my senior honors thesis as an undergraduate student, I went back to Venezuela and I collected oral traditional legends that the Yanomamu pass on to one another over the course of history. Now, these are legends that mostly unbelievers would be telling and actually thinking are the true stories of human existence, and I won't take the time to tell you those, some of those stories. They are interesting, for sure. Um, but there are two Yanomamu cultural heroes who are their deity figures. Their names are Omawa and Yowawa. They're brothers. 
And these deity figures for the Yadamimu are the ones who are responsible for creating many of the features of their life world. So they're, they're these um, figures that in, when you hear about their exploits, they sound a lot like Greek or Roman gods because they're demigod brothers who are fickle, they're capricious, and they embody this Yanamamu concept of what, what they call waiteri, which is this concept of, of ferocity, of, of might makes right, sort of male dominance. And so the legends that the Yanamamu would tell explain how that Omao and Yoawa created many of the features of their life world, the river systems that, that we encountered there. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons I can't tell you the stories besides time is because many of them are actually R-rated. So they're not good stories to be telling in public, and so I'll save you that. But they, they exemplified violence, um, drug, drug use. They taught the people how to, to go to war with one another. Uh, they uh, they talk, taught how to cultivate crops. They taught how to uh, harvest a kind of drug that the people used to ingest through, a, through blowing that drug up one another's nose as they do witchcraft and interact with the spirit world. They taught about polygamy, how that men should be able to have more than one wife. They taught about how men should be able to acquire child brides. They taught about how men should be able to go to war and kill other men in order to steal and acquire second or third wives that way. Um, all the sorcery and witchcraft and the ancestor worship and all of the warfare practices that are endemic there that are so common there, they taught this practice of what's called endocannibalism. Um, it's it's the, the practice of responsibility to take revenge for those who've been killed in your family. So if another community comes and kills someone in my family, then we take the body of that dead person, our relative, we burn the body, we crush the bones, and our family preserves uh, containers of bones, and we drink those bones together over the course of time in order to remember a spiritual responsibility to take revenge for that death and to, to preserve the, that, that spirit of vengeance. And, you know, as I researched those stories and interacted with so many out there in, in the Amazon basin, I, I realized that in Arkansas here in Bentonville, we don't drink bones very often. I'm guessing that you haven't lately. Um, but I, I'll tell you that because of our common estate, as those who are sinful image bearers, there are ways in which we all too dimly reflect the image of God. There are ways in which in our depravity, we, we in, in effect ingest bones spiritually. We resort to trusting in entities, including ourselves, that reduce the size of our God down to something other than he is, that, that reduce his grandeur, that take away from the magnitude of what God expresses to us as the space in our lives that he should occupy. Romans 1, verses 18 and following, talk about that, that devolution process, that human beings, because of sin, they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they begin to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And that, that is the common reality of depravity, of human existence. And so we're all guilty of reducing the grandeur of God in ways that take 
certain spheres of our lives and they make them ours to own. And God doesn't occupy those spaces. And I'll just challenge you to realize that in some of the more bizarre ways that I could tell you stories about Yanomami people, the, the fact of the matter is anytime we reduce or take away spaces in life that God should occupy, we're in fact, in fact just drinking bones of death because we're not giving God rightful ownership and sphere. And in the process, we're enslaving ourselves to that same kind of idolatry. And so as we discuss Psalm 24 for these minutes today, I want us to ask ourselves this diagnostic question, this general question, what are the ways in which we reduce the grandeur of God? This one who is our majestic king, what are the ways in, we, in which we reduce his grandeur, in which we steal away from his glory in our thoughts and our affections and our actions? And so in Psalm 24, David, King David, is going to challenge us to see God as majestic king. And he's going to build a logic for that in these three stanzas, oftentimes poems or organizing stanzas. In fact, if you look at your Bible there, you notice those verse, those stanza markers, in effect, kind of like verses of a song, because these were originally songs to be sung. And so he's going to describe this in three ways. And let me give you these three key concepts based on that theme statement that I made there for you to remember. First, in verses 1 and 2, he's going to describe our Lord the King as majestic creator. So first we're going to see God as majestic creator. He's the one who's going to raise the earth from chaos and set it on foundations and bring life to meaninglessness and voidness, if you will. And then second, in verses 3 to 6, if he's majestic creator in 1 and 2, in 3 to 6, he's the majestic consecrator. Now, for some of you young people in the room, you're like, well, that's a big word. I don't know what that means. A consecrator is the idea of making something holy or sacred, of, of redeeming back, restoring uh, value and worth, ascribing value and worth. And so God as, or the Lord, especially as majestic consecrator, who, who instructs us in how to operate as holy vessels that, vessels that can be useful to him. And then finally, in verses 7 to 10, we're going to see him entering the city gates as majestic conqueror, the one who is indeed the king, who enters the sacred city to occupy the city as the Lord of heaven's armies, the almighty one. So those three aspects of God's person uh, represent what we will talk about tonight, God as creator, as consecrator, and as conqueror. And I, I trust as we do that, that you with me will be lifted up in heart to, to see him for who he is and to give him more occupancy in the spaces of our lives uh, together as churches and as individuals. So in verses 1 and 2 then, let's begin by talking about a couple of representations of God as majestic creator. Okay, let me read those verses for you again, verses 1 and 2. They say the earth and everything in it the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. And that all capitalized word Lord there we will see all throughout the psalm. And I'm, I'm going to talk about that briefly with you. 
For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the river. So if we were going to reestate those two verses in their logical relationship, how do those verses relate to each other? When you see the word for at the beginning of verse 2, that's a because kind of statement. And so we could restate those verses by starting with verse 2, and we could say something like, because the Lord, Yahweh God, created all that exists, because the Lord created all that exists, verse 2, therefore, verse 1, he owns all that exists. So the creator is the one who has the ownership of all that exists in the, the universe, And I know that's not a new concept for you, but has significant implications here. Now, just notice with me again that all-capitalized word LORD there. When you see the word LORD in all caps in your English Bibles, that's that's the use of the name uh, Yahweh, the the personal name of God. And that's that's actually in other languages, and we've seen this in Yanomamu and other languages, oftentimes you can change word order. So in Hebrew, in Psalm 24, Yahweh is actually the first word of the psalm. So it sounds kind of like Yoda talks, right? Yahweh's the earth is, is how the psalmist writes this psalm. And that name of Yahweh dominates the entire psalm. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. This is the covenant name of God. It appears in verse 1, in verse 3, in verse 5. It appears twice in verse 8. And again in verse 10. And so the whole of this psalm and the idea of God's existence and his ownership of the earth depends on that I amness of God. That's the the kind of existence that God described to Moses and that that name represents the I amness of God. In fact, let me give you another uh, term that you may not have heard before in this concept of the self-existence of God. There's a, there's a word that theologians use that's aseity. Aseity, anybody heard that before? A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity. And R.C. Sproul and others would say that, in fact, the concept of aseity is foundational to all other attributes of God. Let me read you a, a short quote about that. Sproul says it this way. He says, in that one little word, aseity, is captured all of the glory of the perfection of God's being. And so let me give you a definition of that idea of aseity because it's important in a host of ways in life. But a definition, a simple definition of that term is God's uncaused self-existence. God's uncaused self-existence. The reason that's important is because we need a God who exists outside of his creation. You don't realize that, but the gods that I've seen in other parts of the world and the gods that we tend in our depravity to trust are gods who are contained within the sphere of creation. They're a part of creation. They're too human, if you will. They're the ones who who look too much like us, just like those two brothers that the Yanomamu believe in, and because we need a God, we need a Yahweh God, we need a self-existent God, we need a a God who possesses a seity, an uncaused self-existent one who exists outside the domains of his creation so that he can be wholly independent from all that exists in beauty and sovereignty and in majesty and in worth as creator king. Now, this means, just in case you wondered, that we and the creation 
do not possess any of the quantity of God. Did you know that? Did you know that God exists in quantity, wholly independent from us? So it's not as if we possess some amount of the essence or the quantity of God just in lesser degree. No, that's, that's false gods. That's idolatry. No, God exists of himself. In Latin, ase. He's the one who is worthy of worship because he's a self-existent, uncaused one. That's one of the reasons why the Bible talks in so many places about the fact that idols are worthless. Because none of the idols of the peoples and none of our idols possess any quantity of the essence of God. So we're worshiping something that possesses no quantity whatsoever of the essence of God. False worship is also worthless because none of the creation possesses any of the quality of God either. Did you know that? So not only does creation not possess any of the quantity of God, it's one of the most significant features of the Christian conception of God, but also none of the creation, including us, possesses any of the quality of God. God exists as wholly other, as something completely separate from all of his creation. His of himself existence means he is set apart entirely in quantity and in quality from all that exists. And so it's that one, the, the Yahweh God, the Lord, the I Am, who this psalm talks about and reiterates so many times, who then made the independent decision to set the earth up, to create the earth, to set the earth on its foundations. He's the one that because he owns all that exists, therefore he created all of that. So uh, let me just tell you, there is no false god, including the ones that we tend to trust, and including ourselves, who unfounds what the majestic creator founds. There's no one who unestablishes what God establishes. The best that we can say about that is that all that exists is God's divine right. Because by definition, he is the divine right. That's who he is. And so through his unique essence as the creator, as the owner, as the sustainer, he presumes, he assumes this majestic kingship over all of the physical and sacred order of the universe. In fact, we, we see here, there in verse 1, that God's ownership extends to the farthest reaches of any possible existences. The earth and everything in it, all the inhabitants belong to the Lord. He's the one that set all of that in place because of his aseity, his uncaused self-existence. So let me ask us, to be more practical after all of that theology, right? After all that theology, let me ask us just some practical questions about how that re relates to the way that we think of God. Let me just ask you first, what really is the organizing center of your life? What really is? Is God really this creator, this one who has, who presumes the right. Now, I know as Americans, oftentimes that's offensive to us, that someone else, how dare someone presume the right to own my life? Doesn't that feel offensive to you? But God presumes the right to own your life. God has the, the, the unique privilege to presume that right. And so what occupies the center of your existence? Are, are we those who are committed to identifying and rooting out these areas of our lives that represent just our own self-interest, that represent our own occupation of spaces, that, that represent 
us at the middle, at the core? Are, are we really pursuing an opportunity in all opportunities to make God central, to, to, to allow him in effect, to take the place in life, in our life, that he deserves. The, to be the majestic creator who occupies the central and every aspect of life that dominates, if you will, our life. That is our owner, our master. Do we really, do we regularly use the word of God as the primary diagnostic instrument that allows us to reflect on the majestic creator, the matchless aseity of God, and then for that word to be a, a, a mirror and, and a, a diagnostic tool that, that causes us to reflect into our actions and, and our thoughts and our, our attitudes, our, our core desires, our affections, such that those are increasingly being conformed to a view of God that establishes him as he should be established as the one who is the divine right. He's the only one who exists that way. And so I, I'm asking us first and foremost then, in the ways that we view ourselves individually, what are areas where we would see in our lives that we occupy spaces, that we don't want to give God the right to speak into our lives and really own our existences. Uh, and I think of that even secondly in ways that we relate to other image bearers around us. You realize that the way that the commandments and the scriptures work, the great commandment and the second commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You realize how much that second commandment depends on the right view of God as majestic creator? If you can't see him that way, then why bother? loving other people well. Why bother? Because you, you, your reference points don't exist. And then what happens to us in our relationships is we become those who are uh, image managers, right? We're those who want to manage our image in relationship to others around us, and that puts us in a position to need to, to maneuver and to plot and to scheme and to plan, right? And how we manage and leverage and, and occupy relationships in such a way that our self-interests are achieved, and you 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 can think of ways. I'm sure that that takes shape in your life. And I'm challenging us: if we look up at the majestic Creator as the one we truly love, then that organizes our relationships with people around us. That puts those relationships in perspective because He owns them as His image bearers as well. Then, if I understand God and He's rightly occupying a space in my life, then no other image bearer can cause me to fear them, because I fear God, right? So the ways in which I tend to fear man, I, I, those get set aside because I'm fearing God and allowing him to occupy rightful spaces and places, so they can't manipulate me, because that's a kind of idolatry. You realize when you fear another image bearer, that's an idolatry? You're idolizing another person and putting them or letting them occupy space that only belongs to God. And so what we need is to see God rightly as a majestic creator, so that as we serve others around us, that we don't serve in fear of them, we serve in fear of him. And as we do that, then we reinforce the place that he, he has in our lives as a majestic creator over us. And then thirdly, just as another area, what about how we invest in churches, in bodies of believers like this? Again, 
Because Christ instituted the church as an institution of authority in our lives, when we rebel against the institution of the church, then we're actually rebelling against the authority of God. Does that, does that feel uncomfortable for you? I know we're not institutional people in the U.S., by and large. We don't like institution as such. But when we rebel against the, the institutions that God established to govern our lives, we're rebelling against his kingship. So let me ask you this. Do we really believe that the church, the body of Christ, is the central culture and identity-forming entity that God has created for us? Is it the primary shaping force of culture and identity for us? Are we participators in the church because we recognize God as the creator? We recognize him as the supreme authority. We recognize him as the one who's placed us in this institutional structure to be accountable. Or is the church also just another personal creative domain where we express our individualism? Is it a place where we can dabble in creating and recreating ourselves according to our own self-image, right? Our own false worship, in effect. And in the U.S., again, it's very simple, because if you don't like this one and, and your, your image isn't looking as quite as stellar as you wanted, you can jump over to the next one, right? Isn't that often the way it works here? And so I'm just challenging us again to take these, these opportunities to see God for who he is as creator, seriously, personally, relationally, and in terms of the church and other institutions that God has created for us. Because as one author says, if we really want to embody God's care and control over creation, then there's nothing in creation that can rule over us. Anytime we are enslaved by an element of creation, then we are experiencing uh, the effects of that fall into sin and death. That's what, that's, that's what that... that practically means for us and so again enslavement to an aspect of creation is bone drinking idolatry that's what that is it may it may not feel like that to you because we're a little too sophisticated to drink bones but in terms of heart orientations and postures indeed that's what we're doing we're trusting we're resorting to faith in something other than the majestic creator so that's that first point there for you and i'm not going to go all night believe me that's the longest one but if in verses 1 and 2 we understand Yahweh the King, the Lord the King, as majestic creator, then the psalmist in verses 3 to 6 also presents him as the majestic consecrator. He's the consecrator because if God exists in that form, then he's the only one who not only determines all of the physical order, but also what we think of as the moral order. He's the only one who has the privilege then to determine what, what constitutes rightness. He's the only one who has the opportunity to de define physical reality and spiritual reality. And that's what the psalmist talks about here. He talks about how that because of God's holiness and set-apartness, his, his Yahweh-ness, his Lordness, his I amness, his aseity, his uncaused self-existence, therefore he is the dictator of all moral terms. And what he describes for us there in that second stanza in, in verses 3 to 6 is the reality of a sinful predicament for human beings. He, he doesn't place human beings on a holiness plane equal with God. No, look at the verses there. 
The first words he asks is, are in the form of a question. So who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? And, and who may stand in his holy place recognizing that there's a problem here? That there's a way in which God requires human beings to approach him based on the fact that he is the majestic creator and therefore he's the majestic consecrator. He's the only one who has the divine right to determine holiness. He, in fact, is holiness. He is set-apartness. And so if someone wanted physically in this era to ascend the mountain of the Lord, that was Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, right, in the era of King David, the, uh, let's not get too far into the weeds there, but obviously the primary temple was set up in, under his son Solomon. But there was a permanent place of worship there during the time of David. And indeed, the people had to ascend that mountain of God in order to stand before him. And so we, let me just point out a couple of notes of how the psalmist describes this quickly, those moral requirements. Because he talks both about, in verse 4, moral requirements... And then he also talks about grace work. You know, we think of the New Testament as the place of grace. But we see grace work here from God also in these verses. First in verse 4 there, you notice that he says, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. Now the appeal to falsehood is a, is a reference to God, Right? Because all of the appeal kinds of language in Scripture are scriptural references to the fact of people worshiping or pledging allegiance. That's why in the Ten Commandments we see so many references to not having other gods, not using God's name in vain, not creating false images. Because God desires for us to appeal only to Him and not to what is false. And therefore, all of our swearing has to be pure and honorable in reference to his holiness. Not only that, though, we have to have clean hands. The meaning there, in, there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, that talks about the indictment or the, the condemnation of human beings because they spread their hands out as if to worship God and their hands are full of blood because they are acting dishonorably one with another. And so in reference to the work that God needs to do and wants to see as we relate to him, as we ascend his mountain, as we come into his presence, he wants hands that are not filled with blood. He wants hands that are lifted up or raised up, that are, that are clean hands. And also the, 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 the idea there that uh, the one who has a pure heart, not only clean hands, hey, we can hide hearts, right? We can, we can look to have clean hands and oftentimes have a heart that's hidden in, in a sinfulness and in a, a lack of cleanliness. And so the psalmist is saying that God's requirements, if we want to approach him, that those requirements include clean hands and pure hearts and not souls who are lifted up to falsehood, not souls that are deceitful. And those are challenging requirements. Those are challenging requirements. I, I suspect we can think of a host of areas of life where we're not legitimately living up to that kind of standard and then by God's mercy I said there's grace here too by God's grace in verse 5 we see that it's God himself who determines blessing and righteousness and and I'll just tell you I know the standard of God is uh, is challenging but praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ right praise God that in the person of Christ that the blessing and the righteous requirements of God in his salvation were fulfilled. In fact, 
The word here that talks about uh, receiving righteousness from God is a word that is similar to the word vindication. So to, to, to declare right, similar in the, in the New Testament to the idea of justification, of us being declared right before God. In other words, if those who would like to approach God or want to approach God with clean hands and pure hearts and uh, without deceitfulness and, and without lifted up souls to what is false, then they're going to need God to do the determining work of blessing and righteousness and salvation. And praise God, for us in the New Testament, those opportunities come through Christ, right? So I just challenge you to realize that as a human being who's a sinner, by definition, you're one whose hands are not clean before God. You're one whose heart is not pure before God. And in Christ, God has given the opportunity through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God has given each of us the opportunity to see Christ's sacrifice on the cross for sin as the sufficient payment that gives that blessing and that righteousness and that cleansing, that cleansing, if you will, for us. Those who would put their faith in Christ and recognize before God that they need to turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they're the ones who have the privilege of ascending the mountain of God. But also, we who profess to be believers, I just, again, challenge us. What are the habits of impurity of hands? If, if, if you think about the physical representation of lifting your hands in the light of God's holiness, are, are your hands clean? Or is there in some way blood on your hands? Is your heart before God pure? Are, are, are the inclinations of your heart honest and honorable? Because professing believer, we have ways in which we, we create this blood enslavement to sin in areas of our lives that we don't indeed lift our hands to God's kingship in this way, that we don't really see him as the only means of consecration for us in every way. That, that we give him the right to clean up certain areas of our lives, especially the ones that are public. We give him the right to clean those up. But in our private lives, oftentimes we withhold the right for him to do that kind of consecrating, transforming work. We, we relegate him to areas of life where we're, we're content for him to work as long as no one else knows about the other ones. And so just to challenge us, if, if we see God as the majestic creator, then by definition of who God is as the uncaused, self-existent one, he's the only means of consecration for us every minute of every day, every hour, every month, every year for the whole of our existences. He's the only one that can do that work for us. And so in verse 6 then, the psalmist David concludes that stanza by saying, Such is the generation of those who inquire of him, who pursue the knowledge of God, who seek to understand God's ways, who seek the face of the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, and I say to you, the God of us, the God of the church. So may we be those who function as a generation chosen and set apart in this way, who seek his approving face in those kinds of terms. And then thirdly and finally, if he's creator and he's consecrator, then praise God he's conqueror. That he's the one who 
takes up his place of presence among his people. That he's the one who rules over his people as creator and consecrator and conqueror. That through the person of Christ, he is truly the ruling and reigning king. That he's the one that when his people see and hear him, they bow their heads to him. Let's just read these verses together quickly again. Because the psalmist makes that picture clear physically in verses 7 to 10. He says it this way. He says, lift up your head, O you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. There's that Yahweh name again. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Rise up, ancient doors. Then the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord of armies, he is the king of glory. Now, I've traveled in Israel on two occasions, and they've discovered some of the ancient ruins of the walls of Jerusalem. Most of the historical pictures we have are these stone walls that are 20 to 30 feet thick, or 20 to 30 feet high, rather, and anywhere between 8 and 10 feet thick, these massive stone walls that guard the city of David, the city of Zion, the place of the temple. And, and that makes for some pretty massive gates, don't you think? Some pretty sizable defensive gates. And the picture here is of these covenant-guarding gates, these, these gates that, that prohibit entry to those who God does not choose to open up entry to. And so what we have here is this, this picture of a call and response. We have this picture of an armed multitude, let's, probably uh, in David's mind, in all likelihood himself, coming back from victor- victorious battle. He's coming back to these massive stone walls with these massive gates of the city of Jerusalem. He's returning in victory. And the people who are inside the city, the watchmen, they see this approaching multitude, and they don't know who that is. And so they call out to the multitude and, and, and because the, the, David calls to them and says, lift up your heads, you gates. Open up for us, he says. And the gatekeepers want to make sure they know who they're talking to and what's happening here. And so they want to confirm the right of that multitude to enter. And so they say, who is he? Who's, who's trying to enter the gates? This king of glory. Or who is this majestic king who requests entry? The question is, does this conqueror deserve to enter the holy city? That's the question they're asking. And by now, we as singers of the psalm, by now we as readers, we know who's coming. We know who's coming. We know that he's the majestic creator and consecrator, the majestic conqueror. We know the matchless worth of Yahweh the king. We know this one who approaches the gates. We know the worth of Christ the King, the one who has accomplished work for us. And the the resounding message here is he is the only one who indeed deserves entry. And so these faithful followers respond to the gatekeepers. They they describe uh, this one who's approaching. They describe him as... uh, the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle there in verse 8. And then they, they, when they ask again, then they describe him, this king of glory, as the Lord of armies. He's the king of gl- glory. And so before his essence alone, immovable covenant gates open up. Before his essence alone, 
those gates lift their heads to their king. Before Christ's name alone, the impenetrable barriers of your heart open to the truth. Isn't that right? Before his name alone, he declares you righteous in the work that he does. He alone conquers and delivers and vindicates and saves and rescues and redeems. And we could go on and on with synonyms to describe the work that God alone can do for us. And so just to ask you, as, as we reflect on this, this view of God as conqueror, are the, are the, is the posture of your life, of your heart, one such that you hear the name of God in Christ and you, your desire is to open your heart to him, to receive him, to allow him entry into all pathways of your soul such that he can do the kind of work that only he can do in the fortress of your life. And I'll tell you, sin builds fortresses. That's what sin does. It deceives us by building fortresses that, that, that prohibit access. And so are we, are we so convinced of God's victorious right as conqueror that we give seed access? We say, this is the one who deserves entry into our lives. This is the one who's conquered sin, death, and Satan through Christ. This is the one whose battle cry I will follow, right? This is the one that I will serve. This is the banner under which I will stake my claim. This is the one who has won every victory on our behalf. There are no other loyalties or allegiances that could possibly compare to that privilege for us. And so just challenge you, are, are you following hard after the gospel narrative that God proclaims through Christ as our conqueror? as the one who is leading the way for us in victory, as he inhabits his creation, as he proclaims conquest over all that he has made, as he spreads his glory to the ends of the earth, as he declares his kingship through the Lord Jesus Christ. At one point in the history of the Reformation, Martin Luther was debating a humanist named Erasmus, who professed to be Christian, uh, Catholic in his day. And Erasmus was concerned, as was the case often in, in this era, that um, making the characteristics of God known to the common people, especially in writing, would, would prove to go over their heads. And so would be detrimental if they talked about common, to common people about the characteristics of God and put them in writing for them. And like the Yanamamu Ata, right, this kind of sort of keeping some of the characteristics of the true God hidden. And Luther wrote to Erasmus to object. And Luther said to him, Erasmus, your thoughts of God are all too human, he said. And I, I challenge us as, as we close to, that we reflect carefully ourselves, that like the Yanomami, we can humanize God. We can make him a lot smaller than he is. In fact, it's more convenient for us in the sinful desires of our hearts because we have defective and fallen imaginations. We call that theologically the noetic effects of the fall, the effects of the fallenness of human reality in the mind. And I'll just tell you, you're more deceived than you think you are. Uh, as I get older, I find out that in retrospect, a lot of what I was so convinced of as a younger person is actually less true than I realized. You, you, can you imagine that, right? 
And so our self-deceptions and our self-worship put us in a position conveniently to manipulate and appease and control and to occupy ultimately space that only God should occupy to shrink him down as much as we can to sanitize versions of us. Makes us feel better about ourselves. And we can't afford to make God, the Lord, the one who possesses a saity, just another cultural hero. We can't afford to make him a figure in cultural religion. Because otherwise, we're falling prey ourselves to idolatry and bone drinking at that. And we reduce the Trinitarian God of the Bible down to a size that doesn't allow for him to take up space as creator, consecrator, and conqueror. Let me close for you here by reading a long definition, or description, I'll say, of God that was written in the early 1600s, even in language, you, yeah, you can understand, so don't worry, by a, a man named William Buchanus, and I doubt that's how he pronounced his name, but that's the best I got, okay? But let me read this to you, and listen to these insightful words, because they, they sure stir my heart, so I hope they can stir yours too. Listen to his description of God. Not his definition, and he makes that clear, but a description. Listen to this as we prepare to close here. He says, um, God is an essence, spiritual, incomprehensible, almighty, immortal, infinite, love itself, mercy itself, justice itself, holiness itself, purity itself, goodness itself, wisdom itself, long-suffering itself, and bountifulness itself, which is the Father who from all eternity begat the Son, co-eternal with himself, and of the same substance with the Father. And the Son, not made nor created, but begotten of the Father from all eternity. And the Holy Spirit, proceeding from them both, the Father and the Son, the Creator and the Conserver of all things, the Redeemer and Sanctifier of the elect. And then he says, which is no definition... Because he that is super substantial and incomprehensible cannot be defined. But such a description as sufficiently contains all such things as in this life are necessary for us to know for the service of God in our salvation. Friends, I trust words like that stir your heart. I, I trust that they give us, like Psalm 24, these glimpses of God who is Yahweh the King. The one who is majestic creator, majestic consecrator, majestic uh, conqueror. The one who in Christ he establishes of himself alone all order in creation, all order in consecration, and all order in the conquest of every foe. Let's pray together.